0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, July 17th, 2015, Episode 13, Concerning the Old Chariot Trick. Welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and it's summer blockbuster season here at Medieval Death Trip, when a young person's fancy turns to explosions and spectacle and dystopian wastelands. So I thought today we'd get into the Mad Max spirit and celebrate a movie that's almost universally loved, and yet still, uh, even at this late stage, a bit of a box office underdog for reasons that I don't quite understand. Um, And I realize I'm a bit late to the game here. Uh, I'd, in fact, prepared this episode for late May, Um, but I've wound up teaching a summer class, which I thought was going to be a pretty easy thing to handle, but Turns out the compressed time frame has made class prep a lot more exhausting than I expected, Uh, so it's taken me until this holiday weekend to get caught up and carve out some serious recording time. And now a note from the future, uh, or the less distant past, uh, to be more accurate. Um, So while I did record during the 4th of July weekend, it's taken me uh, about another week and a half to get the actual editing of that recording done. Um, All this usually happens in... Just a one or two evening span of time, uh, but it's been an intense summer. Uh, With all these time jumps, maybe the new Terminator movie would have made for a better theme. Um, But thanks for bearing with me. Uh, But that time has arrived, and I thank you for your patience. So let's turn our attention to a devastated Australian outback. Now, the medievalistic aspects of the Mad Max series are pretty easy to spot. As with many post-apocalyptic dystopias, the world of Mad Max plays with the tropes of a dark age, where old institutions have failed, advanced knowledge of technology and even history is preserved by only a scattered few, and the new order is rooted in violent, localized chiefdoms skirmishing with each other in the absence of any larger governmental structure. Beyond Thunderdome even dramatizes the origin of a new oral tradition and the creation of a heroic legend out of memory um, in a rhetorical style that's either an homage to or a ripoff of Russell Hoban's uh, great novel, Ridley Walker, which creates a post-apocalyptic world that's even more obviously neo-medieval than the Mad Max world created by George Miller. This ain't one body story. It's the story of us all. We got it mouth to mouth, so you gotta listen it, and remember? Because what you hears today, you gotta tell the birthed tomorrow. I'm looking behind us now, across the count of time, down the long hall, into history back. I sees the end, what with a start. It's Eclipse, full of pain. So the Dark Age warlord tropes reflect perceptions of the fall of the Roman Empire and uh, early medieval history, uh, some of which are certainly real enough and others are um, exaggerated. Uh, As I mentioned in the prologue episode, there's been a lot of academic pushback against the label Dark Ages and the misconceptions that it fosters. Uh, But Mad Max also reflects some of the literary tropes of the chivalric romance of the high Middle Ages. Mad Max himself functions a bit like a knight errant whose picaresque travels throw him into conflicts where he is compelled to act to protect the innocent. Of course, unlike medieval knights, Max's primary motivation in nearly every adventure is simply survival. He is unlike a knight-errant in the sense that he is not on any errand other than staying alive, Uh, nor does he embrace adventure as a thing to be sought for its own sake. In fact, he's only driven into conflict and adventures out of necessity, particularly by the need for gasoline. And also, unlike the heroes of chivalric romance, he is largely unconcerned with fame or valor, um, nor with virtue for its own sake. Indeed, one of his principal traits is the grudging reluctance with which he finally steps in to do good. And the good he does isn't so much motivated by a strong code of ethics, uh, at least not after the first movie, um, but comes through a kind of primal compassion that he can't escape, Uh, a compassion which in um, this summer's film is actually presented as the echoes of his post-traumatic hallucinatory madness. But weighing all that, I do think, narratively, he functions much like a knight-errant in the way that his story intersects with these other stories in which he becomes involved as an outsider, though in his actual character, in his values and motivations, he's very different from a chivalric hero. Another aspect of the Mad Max stories that strongly resembles Arthurian literature is the use of locations. Just as in so many romances, in the Mad Max films, the various enclaves that Max visits, from the gas refinery of the Road Warrior to the barter town of Beyond Thunderdome to the citadel of Fury Road, they each represent exaggerated models of particular political principles, um, practically to the point of allegory. You see that in the castles that Arthurian knights routinely come across rising up out of the wilderness. These are places often rigorously governed by a narrow set of rules and values, some subset of the larger ideology of chivalry through which the knight uh, and the values themselves are tested. Listen on. This is the truth of it. Fighting leads to killing, and killing gets to warring, and that was damn near the death of us all. Look at us now, busted up and everyone talking about hard rain. But we've learned by the dust of them all, Barter Town's learned. Now when men get to fighting, it happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Having said all that, our story for today is not one of Arthurian adventure. Um, In honor of Fury Road, a film that's proud to be basically two hours of barely interrupted car chase, I looked through my collection of texts to find some vehicle-centric stories. Needless to say, vehicles, uh, outside of ships, don't play a huge role in medieval accounts, um, because unless you count a horse or donkey as a vehicle, there just aren't that many. You have carts, wagons, chariots, and sleds, and variations thereon. And compared to unburdened horses, these conveyances seldom play much of an action role. I considered doing part of the Lancelot story, The Night of the Cart, by Chrétien de Troyes, Um, but instead we'll turn to history and look at an actual battle with an actual strategic vehicular ploy, Uh, with decoys and deceptions and all sorts of, I think, Mad Maxian shenanigans. This is the story of the Battle of Lewis during the Second Baron's War in the reign of Henry III, when the king faced a rebellion from some of his leading barons, which might remind you of the political strife of the reign of William Rufus from last episode. Um, But I'm not going to go into detail about the background of the Second Barons' War and all the personalities involved. It's easy enough to look up if you'd like to explore it further. Um, And I think today's text provides enough explanation um, to be able to follow what's going on without uh, a lot of background. This account of the Battle of Lewis comes from the Chronicle of Melrose, which was composed at Melrose Abbey in the Scottish borderlands by multiple monks over at least a century. And today's story was probably written down within living memory of the events, uh, maybe even quite soon after the war. Uh, I'll be reading from the 1856 translation of the Melrose Chronicle by Joseph Stevenson. Anno Domini, 1263. Eleanor, Queen of England, who was believed to be the root, the originator, and the sower of all the discord which existed between Henry, the King of England, and the barons of his realm, being apprehensive of the barons, went out of England, and she was followed, a few days afterwards, by John Monsal, the chief counsellor of the king, who was awed by the same fear. When they had crossed the sea and arrived in France, the said Eleanor collected such a countless multitude of people from out of every nation that they appeared to cover the whole face of the earth. Their intention was to attack England and to destroy from off the surface of the land all who dwelt upon it. When they reached the sea coasts of France, Normandy, and Flanders, They were forced to tarry there so long that almost all of them were at last obliged by their wants to sell their horses, their saddles, their clothing, and nearly every single article of every kind which they had brought with them. For God directed that a very strong north wind should set in and blow violently night and day without intermission for two months and more so that they could not by any means cross over into England. Hereupon, perceiving that the power of God was decidedly opposed to them, Every man of them returned to his own home at the end of the second month, with the exception of the many who died by the road. In this same year, the English barons, who for the last twelve months had been preparing themselves for a mortal struggle, laid hands, by right or wrong, upon whatever came within their reach. Herein they resembled fishes, who, as Aristotle states in his fourth book upon animals, devour whatever they can catch. Anno Domini, 1264. At the Battle of Lewis, the barons of England, in conjunction with the army of the Londoners, and aided by Gilbert, Earl of Gloucester, gained the victory over their King Henry and his eldest son Edward shortly after Easter. On the day after the battle, the barons gave both of them, I mean the king and his son, into the custody of Simon de Montfort. In the same fight, two of the Scottish nobility, Robert de Bruce and John Cuman, were taken prisoner and placed in close confinement in the castle of Dora. The disagreement out of which originated this struggle between the king and his barons had its beginning and its end in this, that the king and his queen Eleanor, the mother of Prince Edward, had for a long time retained near them and favored the foreigners, so far as to be guided by their counsels, and this, contrary to the interests of the kingdom and the wishes of the inhabitants, whose remonstrances they rejected, one may almost say despised, It was for the purpose, then, of entirely expelling these foreigners from the Kingdom of England that the said battle was fought, for so powerful had they become against the inhabitants of the land that they had caused many persons to be disinherited. After the barons had gained the victory, as we have related, forthwith all the foreigners banished themselves, except Simon de Montfort and a few others who remained with him. And all these had faithfully promised by an oath made upon the Gospels that they would adhere to the party of the barons. This Simon was Earl of Leicester, and the son-in-law to the king. He was an excellent man, wonderfully skilled and circumspect in making arrangements for military affairs, and in carrying them out into execution after they were planned. He was a good soldier, and he had been knighted, and from these considerations the barons selected him to direct them, as well in their councils as in the war. By birth, he was a Frenchman, descended from one of the most noble and powerful families of the whole of France, and he did not degenerate from his ancestors, but equaled them. He was a man endowed with heavenly wisdom, and amply provided with knowing precautions. It may be worthwhile to introduce an account of one of these. A few days before this Simon set out against the king with the army of the Londoners, whom he was about to lead to the battle which we have mentioned, he caused a cunningly devised chariot to be built, the whole of the outside of which he had covered with iron, and into it he thrust two of the citizens of London. They were old men of some influence, but they were opposed to him and to the whole city, for they frequently dissuaded the people from going out with Simon against the king. And therefore it was that when this came to the ears of Simon, he shut them up, as I have described, as a punishment for this wicked, foolish, and obstinate advice. Now, when the said army was about to leave the city, Simon took with him, in their carriage, these crafty orators, in order that they might not cause the city to surrender to the royal interest while the army of the Londoners was employed in the expedition against the king. The chariot had a little narrow door, through which these aged persons could go out and in, but still under watchful custody, when the necessities of nature so required it. On the evening of the day previous to that upon which the battle was fought between the king and the barons, when it grew towards nightfall, the entrance to this chariot, through which victuals used to be conveyed to these burgesses, was so firmly closed up by Simon's orders that from that time they had no longer any opportunity whatever of issuing forth. Round about that chariot Simon had caused to be hung those standards which are called pennons, that by this means the king and his army might be deluded into the belief that Simon was in the chariot in which however the true Simon was not for at that very time he was lurking about in woods which were surrounded with mountains and steep rocks and at some distance from the town of lewis somewhat towards the direction of the southwest of england in company with the earl of gloucester and some few others of the nobility along with whom were the barons of nearly the whole of England, and very many renowned knights, many horse-soldiers and foot-soldiers innumerable, amongst whom was a large body of crossbowmen and slingers, who in the day of battle would occasion great confusion to the king's army by the showers of stones which they would throw like thunderbolts from those slings of theirs. Among the noble persons whom I have mentioned was the Bishop of Worcester. He was afterwards banished, because he had so far reversed the Episcopal character as to put aside the meekness of the bishop and assume the warlike qualities of the knight, wearing at his side a sword instead of carrying the pastoral staff and having a helmet on his head instead of a mitre. So when the king went out to battle against the barons... Those who were the more forward in the army noticed those pennons which I have mentioned as having been hung around the chariot, and they pressed forward to reach it. The Londoners had already told the royal army that within the chariot sat Simon, whom they had appointed as their leader in the battle, and they added, He is resolved to keep behind us, and he refuses to go out with us to fight for us as he promised. We are very suspicious about him on this account, for he pretends that he is so ill that he cannot mount his horse. In truth, we were apprehensive that he would betray us to the king, his son in law and that he would attack us on the rear, along with the royal army, and therefore we have caused this very strong chariot to be made, so that if we must needs die in battle, he shall die with us, for we will put plenty of fuel beneath this chariot in which he is, and burn him within it. Emboldened by such words, those persons whom I have described as being the more forward in the royal army, pressed forward to reach this conveyance in which Simon was, as they believed. Whilst they were engaged with all their energies in attacking this fraudulent vehicle, and made no progress in their assault, they lost ground and courage at one and the same time. As for the chariot, it was of great assistance to the Londoners, for whilst many of the king's army were endeavoring with all their strength to break it open, the lives of those whom I have described as the Londoners, as well far off as near at hand, were saved, for the barons had not as yet come up and joined them. And therefore, during the delay occasioned by this interval of suspense, while the assault was being made upon this deceptive conveyance, many of the Londoners were not engaged in the action. So when the army of the barons came up and assailed the king's army on the rear, a large proportion of the Londoners who had been drawn up in front of the king's army, such of them especially as were near the chariot, preserved their strength unabated, and they afterwards fought all the more effectively against the exhausted soldiers who were on the king's side. This deceptive piece of baggage had been constructed partly with the very intention that it might act as a device which should prove for the security of the inhabitants of the city of London. For though the royal troops were earnestly engaged in assailing it with all their energies, they entirely failed. And at the same time, the Londoners continued fresh and vigorous and ready for the battle. The effort was continued for nearly the whole day, almost to the eighth hour, by the royal troops, who attempted from every point of assault to make themselves masters of this chariot, in which, as they believed, Simon was cooped up. And in so doing, they lost many men of undaunted courage. Many others of their knights were grievously wounded. Much labor was lost, and much anxiety bestowed upon it, as one troop followed another, The best of the king's forces seemed to have been seized with madness, and they rent the air with the wildest shouts, crying out, Come out, Simon! Come out! Their impression was that Simon had some device by which he could open the door from within, so as to be able to leave the carriage, and therefore they kept crying out continually, Come out, Simon, you devil! Come out of the carriage! Whilst they continued these shouts at the top of their voices, At last the two citizens of London who were within contrived to make them understand that Simon, whom they were seeking, was not there, but only two unfortunates, whom Simon had entrapped out of spite to the king. For he was apprehensive, they said, that the city of London would have been surrendered to the king's services by our means had we remained at home in our houses, whilst the others went out to fight against the royal troops. No man in his sound senses ought to believe that this Simon was a traitor, or to call him one. He was no traitor, but a most devoted respecter and most faithful protector of the church of God which is in England, and the shield and defender of the nation of the English people, and the enemy of the foreigners whom he drove out of this country, though he was himself by birth a foreigner. It was an act of justice, then, not of treachery, when he carried off in the chariot these two Englishmen, who thwarted his efforts by their endeavour to prevent the city of London, which is of greater importance than all the towns and chariots in the world, from rendering assistance to the barons, since they could not by any means accomplish the expulsion of the aliens unless they had the most valuable cooperation of that important city, deprived of which they would have been surrounded on all sides by the power of the king's party. Since these old men whom we have mentioned ventured thus singly to oppose themselves to the united sentiments of the whole city, they ought, by God's just judgment, to have perished outside the city, if they and their chariot had been burnt in the fire. In this battle, many thousand men were killed, foot soldiers and horsemen. In this battle, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, the brother of King Henry, who a few days previously had defied the barons to battle, styling them traitors to the king and the kingdom, being apprehensive of his life, took refuge in a windmill, and there he barred the door upon himself. When it was near eventide on the day of the battle, the barons came up to it and called out loudly to him, Come down, come down, you wretched miller. Come out of your mill, come out. They upbraided him with his timidity and cowardice and added, It is a great misfortune to you that you must be called a miller, you who so lately defied us poor barons to battle, and when you defied us, no less glorious title would serve you than that of the king of the Romans and the perpetual Augustus. For a short time previously he had been king of Germany, in consequence of which he styled himself the perpetual Augustus and the king of the Romans. So Richard at last did come out of the mill, and the barons carried him off after they had put him in chains, and then they placed him in close confinement. But it happened that as he was exceedingly wealthy, he was liberated about five months afterwards by the payment of a large ransom, no less than 17,000 pounds of sterlings and 5,000 pounds of gold, a sum worth having. So there's the Battle of Lewis, as described in the Melrose Chronicle. And I think we got a few free sound effects in there as well, as my neighbors have begun setting off their fireworks. The Melrose Chronicle uh, actually made the news not all that long ago. As reported in The Guardian this past November, the curators at the British Library, while preparing for this year's big Magna Carta anniversary, uh, realized for the first time that Um, a description of what happened at Runnymede in the Melrose Chronicle is actually the earliest independent account of this major event in English history. It's not like the Melrose Chronicle had been lost for centuries or anything. Uh, It's just that no one had recognized the historiographic significance of this bit of text in the Chronicle until now. Um, I think this is a nice reminder that You can make important discoveries without having to unearth an Anglo-Saxon burial mound or find a previously undocumented manuscript in the attic of an old manor house or parish church. There are discoveries to be had in texts that have been in the hands of modern scholarship for well over a century. And speaking of Magna Carta, one of the features of today's story that I find interesting is the argument for Simon de Montfort's uh, patriotism that it makes. And a little bit later on in the Chronicle, we get an extended argument in favor, basically, uh, of his sainthood, which we may revisit in a later episode, since the story of the bodily relics of Simon um, is a bit of fun. Now, I have to tread carefully here and avoid making strong claims, because I'm not especially knowledgeable uh, about the intersection of feudal politics and English national identity and how it evolved— um, but it is intriguing to see this wholehearted defense of a rebel against royal power. This treason is mitigated in one of the usual ways, which is to heap blame on the bad advisers and parasites in the king's court, so that there is some notion of the rebels striving to save the king from evil counselors rather than attack the throne itself. But our chronicler here, while pointing out the goal of driving out wicked foreign aristocrats from the kingdom... And in this, one can almost hear echoes of the current debate about Russian oligarchs living large in London. Um, The Chronicler doesn't include the stock phrases that might let the king off the hook. And Simon isn't said to be acting in the interests of the crown, even if the crown doesn't know it. Nor is he primarily defending the rights of the barons, an aristocratic state whose relative autonomy from the monarch had been established by Magna Carta. No, He's the representative of the English church and the, quote, nation of the English people. Again, I can't speak very authoritatively on how unusual this sentiment actually is in the late 13th century, uh, but it stood out to me, and it appears that its author understood that praising Simon was a controversial opinion, um, or else he wouldn't have needed to go on to devote pages and pages of Chronicle defending Simon's proven goodness. And on the subject of controversy, I thought I'd wrap up by sharing a 13th century ballad concerning the character we met at the end of today's text, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, and also the second son of King John, speaking of Magna Carta, and who once also claimed the title of King of Germany and shamed himself by fleeing the Battle of Lewis and hiding in a windmill. I learned uh, about this ballad through a reference in our translator Stevenson's footnotes, Um, who cites a printed version in Wharton's History of English Poetry, uh, which came out in 1778. Luckily, after tracking this reference down and finding the ballad, um, it turns out it's from the very famous uh, manuscript Harley 2253, uh, the so-called Harley Lyrics, one of the greatest surviving collections of Middle English songs. And as such, there's a nice fresh online version of the lyrics by the team's um, Middle English text series. So I'll read from that uh, with just a few alterations. For a 13th century text, I find the language startlingly modern, even copied down and presumably updated a bit by a 14th century scribe. Um, So I'll read you the Middle English text, uh, but in an inauthentic modern pronunciation. Uh, And I'll do a teensy bit of modernization of prepositions and common words. A handful of archaic words that I'll go ahead and define, though. uh, Trichard, which is part of the refrain, means both tricky and treacherous. Swiving is a good Chaucerian word that means having sex. Uh, A bale is a poison. To wind uh, is the past tense of the Middle English form of the verb ween, meaning to think or believe. Uh, and a manganel is a kind of battering ram. Oh, and of course, the name of Germany in French is Almanya, uh which gets an extra syllable in Middle English, but still signifies Richard's claim to be king of Germany, a title which he held through the bribery of German electors, um, but which never really amounted to much more than simply being a title. That might sound like a lot to try to keep in mind, um, but I think in reality, this song won't be too hard to follow. Uh, here it is, a satirical ballad on Richard, Earl of Cornwall, also known as A Song of Lewis. Sitteth all still and hearkeneth to me, the king of Alamanya, by my loyalty, thirty thousand pounds, asked did he, for to make peace in the country, and so he did more. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, tricken shall thou never more. Richard of Allemagne, while that he was king, he spend all his treasure upon swiving. Haveth he not of Wallingford a farthing? Let him have, as he brew, bale to drink, Mauger Windsor. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, tricken shall thou never more. The king of Allemagne, wind do full well, he seized the mill for a castle. With their sharp swords they ground the steel. He wind that the sails were mangonel to help Windsor. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, Trickin' shall thou nevermore. The king of Alamanya gathered his host, maketh him a castle of a millpost. Wind with his pride and his great boast brought from Alamanya many sorry ghosts to store Windsor. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, Trickin' shall thou nevermore. By God that is above in us, he did much sin that let pass over the sea the Earl of Warren, He hath robbed England, the Moors and the Fin, the gold and the silver, and Eborin hence, for the love of Windsor. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, tricken shall thou nevermore. Sir Simon de Montfort hath swore by his chin, had he now here the Earl of Warren, should he nevermore come to his inn, not with shield, not with spear, not with any other gin to help of Windsor. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, Tricken shall thou never more. Sir Simon de Montfort hath swore by his foot; had he now here Sir Hugh de Bigot, all he should quite hear twelve months. Scot, should he never more with his footpot to help Windsor. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, would tricken shall thou never more. Be thee loved, be thee loathed, Sir Edward, thou shalt ride spurless on thy lyard all the right way to Doverward. Shalt thou never more break forward? And that rueth sore. Edward, thou didst as a shrewd, forsook thy image's lore. Richard, though thou be ever trichard, tricken shalt thou never more. So quoth the Raven. Um, now, in his History of English Poetry, Wharton suggests that this very ballad may have occasioned a statute against libels in 1275, a law with the title, quote, against slanderous reports or tales to cause discord between king and people, which maybe suggests some of the sensitivity of a freshly crowned Edward I after the turmoil of his father's reign. And speaking of turbulent political times, one other interesting little tidbit I came across while looking at this poem was a brief item by Charles Clay Doyle in a 1973 issue of the journal Western Folklore, which draws a functional connection between Richard the Trichard... Uh, from this song, and a rhyming epithet of the modern era, Richard Tricky Dick Nixon. We talked about by names last episode, and here we have rhyming epithets. And judging by virtually any comment section on an online news story, derogatory nicknames are as in vogue as ever in American politics. Um, But you know, maybe we could look to the Middle Ages for some moderately more creative forms. Uh, Has anyone used, say, Hastert the Bastard yet? Teddy the Unready. Um, Read the bleed, as in bleeding the taxpayers dry. But, okay, so that's a stretch. Um, But I'm trying to be nonpartisan. Another note from the future. Uh, I did just spot a couple of days ago, out in the wild, or on the internet, um, the epithet Trump the Chump. So the tradition is alive and well. Anyway, that's enough nonsense for this round. Uh, We have a riddle to solve. Our riddle from way, way back in last episode was, what flies without flesh? Uh, This is another of the claret riddles, and the medieval answer is simply an arrow, just like the one that laid low William Rufus. These days, of course, it could also be an airplane or a rocket, uh, as inanimate flying objects. Um, But even in the Middle Ages, you'd think the logic here would apply to pretty much any projectile, a javelin or a stone hurled from a sling. Um, But I guess arrows do have a special claim to flight. Um, They've got feathers. But here's a new riddle, uh, maybe to wash the taste of that other one out of our mouths. Four equal sisters, and they run with skill, as if they vied. One labor they fulfill. Though near, they never touch. But keep their distances still. Once again, four equal sisters, and they run with skill, as if they vied, one labor they fulfill. Though near, they never touch, but keep their distances still. I'll be back uh, before the end of the month with the next answer. Uh, sorry for keeping a rather raggedy release schedule, but it's gonna be a kind of raggedy summer. As ever, you can find more information about this episode and older episodes at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can email me with any comments, questions, or corrections at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.